Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. Welcome to episode 153 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, my wife and I get back into Philippians. We look at chapter 3, verses 8 through 14, where Paul says that nothing compares to the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. He says that everything else is like dung. Everything else is like rubbish. Why would he say that? And why would he say he wants to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings? We'll get into all that and more in this episode. And if you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can find what we do on the Omega Frequency podcast, Omega Frequency, and you can find what we do on the Omega Frequency YouTube channel and Rumble channels, so please go check that out. Also want to give you all a quick book update. The new book is going to be called The Coming Abominable Temple, so be in prayer for that. Well, without any further ado... Let's get into episode 153. So just setting the stage, you know, last week, uh, the main verse that we ended on was verse 7 of chapter 3, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. And so Paul's going to expound on that theme tonight. And so to just kind of give more of the context of what he means by things that were gained, we're going to start in verse 4, and we're going to read all the way to verse 14. So Stephanie, you have a big chunk to read. Okay. All right. All right. I think you'll do great. <laughs> Okay. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day, the nation of, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them. Sorry, I feel like I'm out of breath today. You're doing but, great. but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is found through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the, right, the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also, which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's get into verse 8. All right, so Paul writes, more than that, and more than that is whatever things were lost to me, or sorry, whatever things were gained to me, those things that he really had a, a lot of pride in from his Jewish heritage, whatever things were gained to me, those things I count as loss for the sake of Christ. But more than that, I count all things, so not just the things that he took pride in, from his life before Christ, but 
all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. So he counts all things in his life, all things, everything compared to Christ is rubbish because of the surpassing greatness that is in knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. All right. That surpassing greatness means to it's excel and surpass, to be superior, to have uh, prominence. Um, it's a word that Paul used in chapter two when he was saying that we're supposed to count others as more important than ourselves, like putting them far, far above ourselves. It's not just like um, Jesus, others, and me. It's like putting them way above us. And Jesus is way, way above everything else. It uh, reminded me of a parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. And Matthew 13 is telling various parables about the kingdom of heaven. And toward the end, he gets to this one in verse 44 of chapter 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sell all that he has and buys that field. And so this treasure that he finds, which is of immense value, is far, far, far more valuable to him than everything he has. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like that. And um, this is a parable that I've used to present the gospel at different times, but just a really quick summation. In one sense, you could say that uh, Jesus made us that treasure. You know, this person, Jesus gave up everything. Um, and you could say, you know, even before he became human, right? Uh, getting rid of all of the perfection of heaven to come down and then giving his life to ransom us. In turn, we are called to see Jesus as that treasure. In light of what he did for us, we make him far beyond everything else and we sell out, sell everything for him, basically. Gladly giving all away to him. He owns it all. All right. Now, coming back to that verse, we're going to hit a few different phrases in the in this verse, really important verse. Um, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing knowledge, so, sorry, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. That suffered is zemi'a'o. That means to experience loss, right? You looked at me like I was going to correct you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, as a person grows, this is from uh, Strong's, as a person grows in knowing Christ, they willingly lose their right to be self-governed. You can see this word, uh, zemi'a'o, in Luke, 22, or Luke 9, starting in verse 22. So it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And as he was saying, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So yeah, if we really get, if we really understand how amazing Jesus is, we do what Paul did. I mean, he was pursuing one path and he totally went in the opposite direction. He totally left all of that behind for the sake of Christ. 
Now that may be metaphorical with a lot of us, but it's basically you, this transfer of ownership and just this is no longer my house, my car, and you can keep going. Like the person, well, Jesus sent his disciples out one day when he was uh, coming into the city, into Jerusalem uh, in Passion Week, and he said, uh, go into the city and find, you'll, in there you'll find uh, a cult, right? And uh, if the owner of the house comes out and says, like, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it, right? And they come back with the cult. The conversation happened. The Lord needs it. It's his cult. It's his donkey. Uh, we're just stewarding it for a while. But uh, Luke also hits on this term or on this concept in uh, Luke 14. And this is a really challenging passage. It's interesting when Jesus starts to become really popular, uh, how he'll say different things to kind of um, weed out those who are surface level or those who are not truly devoted. Um, kind of like uh, a freshman English class at AM or something like that. I mean, you have these fail-out classes, you know, where they intentionally make it really hard in the most popular classes to see who's really serious about this stuff. And uh, kind of like Jesus does in John 6 when he says, whoever, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me, that kind of a thing. He does the same kind of thing in Luke 14. It's got just massive, massive crowds. This is, uh, there's a great crescendo happening at this point. He is on his way to Jerusalem and uh, just massive crowds, massive popularity. And yet Jesus says this to the crowds. Starting in verse 27 of chapter 14 of Luke, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not finished. Or, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. It's really interesting. You got this king with 10,000 coming up against a king of 20,000. The king of 10,000, Jesus says, is wise because before that, battle goes down. He sends out a delegation saying, hey man, let's strike a bargain. What can we do so that we have peace? The king with 20,000, according to Jesus says, give up everything you own, give it up and we'll have peace. See, he makes a direct uh, comparison to what he says in verse 33, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're literally selling everything you have and becoming homeless, okay? That's not exactly what he's getting at. What he's getting at is he's not just a good teacher. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And as Psalm uh, 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the sea and all it contains. He owns it all. If you're coming into a relationship with him, you got to understand first, he's the Lord, so he owns it. It's no more mine, it's his. I think that kind of correlates with um, like the being the body of Christ. And, you know, we all like to think that we're, you know, some important part of it. And we're all important in the sense that we need all the parts to function. But like independently, you know, we we're giving up all those the rights to think that we're going to function independent from the body because we know what's, what's best for the, you know, for the body to function the way that it's intended to, all of them have to be under the headship of Christ. Like we have to all fall in our, in line and to know our roles. And it's not like we've given up. We're not, I don't know, just like brainless robots or anything like that. We, but we're using our giftings to function together. We're not trying to glorify our part and say, I am the most important part of the body. 
we're putting that aside. We're getting rid of all that, um, you know, autonomy and being part of this larger body in order to accomplish so much more than we could. We're so much bigger than the sum of our parts. Yeah. And, and the giving up of this stuff is something that happens with joy when we're really being moved with the Holy Spirit. You clearly see that in Acts chapter 2 when people are gladly selling their, their possessions and laying the money at the apostles' feet, not to make the apostles rich. The apostles are making sure that there are no needy people among them. Right. You see the same thing happen in Acts chapter 4 at the very end of the chapter where a man named Barnabas, right, this son of encouragement, right, this guy has a field and he sells it, lays it at the apostles' feet. There's no compulsion here uh, other than just the Holy Spirit moving people to give joyously and uh, joyfully laying down their lives for, for Christ, right, because they see the surpassing value of Christ. Matthew Marcel said, Phil, can you give the example of the deed to the house? Um, that helped things make sense to me. So we had a house guest. Uh, we had two um, when we were newly or early, early in our marriage. Yeah. Uh, at different points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pre kid they kids. They were our like adult kids. Yeah. And uh, so each of them had their own room. Uh, they had. Their, bath, their own bathroom. Uh, they had a key to our house. They had um, access to our cars. They had access to our fridge. Um, just, it was great, but they didn't own the house. Mm -hmm. At any time, we could have kicked them out of the house if we wanted to. We had the deed to the house. We own the house. And so um, when a lot of times people are asking Jesus into their heart, you know, like I was told that growing up, you hear that a lot in vacation Bible schools. You hear it a lot in evangelistic things, you know, ask Jesus into your heart. He's not, it's not like we're inviting him in to be a guest, you know, even a long-term guest. It's not like we can say, Jesus, you can come into my heart and you can have access to my past. You can have access to this and that. No, if you are truly making Jesus your Lord, you are signing over the deed to your house. You're the guest now. He's the owner. And you're not co-owners. It's not like you're adding his name to it. You're transferring ownership. You're the guest. I hope, that, uh, hope that's what you're going for, Matthew. Yeah, I, I think that's... Um... That's really good. That phrasing of take, asking Jesus into your heart is so ingrained in so many Christians. I remember hearing it, I mean, every single Sunday growing up. And um, it's not to knock that. It's more of a, should, we need to take a step back and examine this. And, you know, I don't think that everybody means it the way that they they use it. But now when I hear it, I'm always like, let, let me ask a clarifying question when you're using that phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. Like, what do you mean by that? Like, can you explain that a little bit more? And a lot of times it it is kind of like what you're talking about. Like, it's you're, you're a guest, Jesus, come on in. You're welcome. Mikasa, Asukasa. But it's it's also, I know I'm still I'm still the, the owner. Or it's getting late. It's it's time for you to go back to your home. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go to my room now, Jesus. You go to your room or you've overstayed your welcome. You can just leave now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Paul, verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That is about as close to um, a curse word uh, as you'll find, uh, you know, you can make an argument about the fool word in uh, Matthew 5. But um, this is like excrement. It's like, you could say scraps that are like like trash that dogs will eat, you know, or pigs will eat, that kind of a thing. Uh, Paul says, compared to Jesus... Everything is like straight up refuse. Um, 
So use whatever word you want to use to substitute for that. But that's the idea. Paul's making it that distinct, that separate. He's making that hard of a contrast on purpose. These things that we hold to so tightly that we ascribe so much glory to, if we could really put them next to glorified Christ, um, and we're thinking straight, it, it would be like appalling, these things that we hold so tightly. They'd be so appalling as someone taking a big pile of garbage and like putting it up in your face. You know, the reaction that you would have, just this, uh kind of, that's the kind of, that's what Paul's trying to convey to us. Um, so he counts them rubbish, all things rubbish compared to gaining Christ. And he continues, so that I may gain Christ in verse nine and be found in him, sorry, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith on the faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Remember earlier in Philippians, he said, you know, as to the righteousness found in the law, it was blameless, right? And you're going to see different people in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament that are called righteous. Noah, Job, Daniel, um, you've got Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, in the New Testament in Luke 1 being called righteous. Lot is called righteous. Uh, there, are, there are several people that are called righteous, but keep in mind Ezekiel 33, that the righteousness of the righteous man won't deliver him in the day of his transgression. So you can be considered righteous in the eyes of the world and even in the eyes of God, like Luke 1 says about Zacharias and Elizabeth. But the thing is, if you just have one sin, sorry, none of the former things that you've done will have any value. All right. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need his righteousness. Paul kind of gets into uh, this a little bit in, um, in Romans 1 when he's quoting Habakkuk 2. All right. So this is Romans 1, starting in verse 16. Uh, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or from faith for faith or from faith for faithfulness. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can kind of translate that that are applicable. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, um, in the NAS, which is what I'm using up here, you see that man in italics, and that's because it's inserting it. Um, in there because it's basically implied. But who is this righteous man is an interesting question. You go to Habakkuk 2, where that verse comes from that Paul's quoting, and uh, it says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. And whose faith is it? Whose faith are we going to live by? Whose faithfulness do we live by? And I think it's implied it's Jesus's yeah. faith that we're clinging to. Jesus's faith and Jesus's faithfulness that makes us righteous um, and clinging to that and uh, letting that transform us so that we then become the righteousness of God in him as uh, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. Yeah. Right. Verse 10, so that I may know him. Verse, I'll, let me give verse nine's thing a little bit. I want to be found in him. Excuse me, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I've read this uh, passage so many times. I've preached through Philippians. Um, and for some reason, this verse struck me like never before, just one aspect of it. Paul 
in like 61 or so AD is saying, I want to know him. And it's just, maybe that doesn't strike you, but to me, it's just like, if anybody like knows Jesus around that time, I mean, it's, it's Paul and, and, you know, the apostles, of course, you know, of course, those people that like walked with him, but Paul knows Jesus, right? He knows Jesus. Let me read a, a few passages from the New Testament. All right. This is Acts 26 is when he's before, I think it's Agrippa. Um, he's giving his testimony. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, uh, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those were journeying, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But get up, stand up on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. So he's saying, I'm not done appearing to you. This is just the first of many times. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion to Satan of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Uh, Jesus will appear, I'm sure, from time to time to different people, like in, in visions and stuff. You hear reports of that, like in um, Muslim countries, you know, uh, where Jesus will appear to them. But it doesn't happen a whole lot, I'm sure. And Paul got it, and he's getting it numerous times. And that's not at all the end of his encounters with Jesus. Let's keep going. This is in Galatians 1. He writes, I would, have, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Probably like in Arabia or wherever, um, where he's hanging out for all those years. It's being taught personally by a revelation, an unveiling, a revealing of Jesus himself. That That's pretty important. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's Acts 18. This is Paul in Corinth after he's facing some persecution. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. All right, so there's Jesus again appearing to Paul in a vision. And we're not done. There's 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talking about himself in the most humble way. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. You remember when Jesus is on the cross, you see this in Luke, and you got the insurrectionist on his right, says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says, amen. You know, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Wherever that is, I mean, that's where Jesus is. And that's where Paul went whether he in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know, but he was up there. It's crazy. With Jesus. And he says, I want to know Christ. That's just, it's incredible to me. And um, as much as we think, we may think we know, I know God, 
it, it, it just reminds me of this passage that a counselor would tell me um, every single time I met with him. Um, he's a really good guy, and he really knew how to smack me down when I was getting, as my dad would say, too big for my britches. And uh, it's, it's from 1 Corinthians 8, too. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Just a powerful verse to contemplate. Paul continues, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Let's talk a little bit about the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Here's, uh, here's 1 John 3, uh, starting in verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. It kind of sounds like uh, John and Paul might have been friends. They might have been preaching the same gospel. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15 says that when the Lord appears right at that last trumpet, uh, the dead will be raised and we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye, right? And what are we going to be changed into? Well, John says we're going to be changed to be like him when he comes because we'll see him as he is. And of course, Romans 8 talks about that too. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined become conformed to the image of his son. It's just incredible, right? Those whom he foreknew, he called. Those who he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Pretty, pretty crazy. Um, continuing, Paul says, I don't, just want to know the power of his resurrection. Paul also says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. This is a word that Paul has been using a few times already in, uh, in Philippians when he talked about uh, in view of their participation of the gospel. Uh, I believe that's in um, chapter 1. And... Um, he uses that same word fellowship in chapter two and now in chapter three. Fellowship is really important to him, not just participating or sharing in the gospel, not just sharing in Christ, um, but uh, sharing in his sufferings as well. Paul wants to share in his sufferings. And it's interesting because He's writing this around like 60, 61 in Rome. He also most likely, uh, he wrote 2 Corinthians most likely from Ephesus uh, a couple years before that. Uh, most likely in, in um, Acts chapter 19 when Paul's in Ephesus and he spends two years there, I think, two or three years there. Um, that's where he writes 2 Corinthians, according to some commentators. And so here's some of the sufferings that Paul has already encountered in Acts 19. Remember, like he's writing Philippians in what would be like Acts 28 or Acts 20, if there would be a 29. That's where when he's writing Philippians. This is what he wrote in Acts 19. All right. So here's, uh, here's some words from 2 Corinthians. Steph, you want to read this? Yeah. All right. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I, I more so, in in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Yeah, so Paul knows a lot about suffering, right? And then years later, he's like, no. I want to know it. <laughs> I want to know suffering, yeah. right? And you see where he's going. Uh, as you continue verse 10, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Kind of made me think of um, Romans chapter 12, where Paul talks about in view of the, you know, the mercies of God. Well, let's present ourselves as living sacrifice to him, holy and pleasing. That's our spiritual act of worship, right? And he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll know what the will of God is, right? His good, pleasing, and perfect will, right? And so it's, it's so interesting, uh, like when you if you're an unbeliever or a new believer, brand new believer, and you're reading the Beatitudes, you're like, poor in spirit is good. Mourning is good. Meekness is good. Persecuted for the sake of righteousness is good. What? Right? But you see Paul's mind being transformed so much so that he no, not only does he not want to be conformed to the world, he wants to be conformed to the death of Christ. Mm. And he says that, and this is really weird, but he pairs this idea of being conformed to the death of Christ to what he says next in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, you should just kind of think about that because it's it's pretty heavy, what he's saying there, and it's not going to be something you're going to hear preached on very often in your churches. Um, he wants to be conformed to the sufferings of Christ and be conformed to the death of Christ so that he can be resurrected from the dead. I'm not preaching a works salvation here. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. And he's not saying that uh, martyrdom guarantees you a trip to heaven, like, you know, Islam might teach, right? That's not what Paul's getting at, but he's getting at something that is really heavy and something that he teaches throughout his letters. So I'm going to start with um, 2 Corinthians 10, and then we're going to go Romans 8, okay? 2 Corinthians is probably the last letter that Paul wrote. He's come to the end of his life, and he's giving his son in the faith some last bit of instruction. 2 Corinthians? Did I say Corinthians? I, yep. I meant and Timothy. you said 2 Corinthians Goodness 10. gracious. I am... <laughs> way off. I apologize. That's me trying to multitask and not doing a good job. Second Timothy chapter three, verse, verse 10. 10. There it is. Got the second and the 10. Everything else, everything was, else was garbage. <laughs> it was rubbish. Uh, all right. Why so is this rubbish? is second Timothy three ten. Okay. Now, he says to Timothy, you followed my teaching, conduct and purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, 
at Iconium, and at Lystra. Let's just pause there, okay? Timothy knew about the persecutions at least firsthand in Lystra because that's Timothy's home. Timothy saw Paul in Lystra get stoned to death. All right, and it had a huge impact on him. And Antioch and Iconium are the places just before he got to Lystra. And there he was heavily persecuted as well in Antioch and Iconium. But in Lystra, he got stoned to death preaching the gospel and God resuscitated him, whether it was just a miraculous thing that God did uh, without the um, inclusion of disciples or whether he used the disciples that gathered around Paul and perhaps were praying for him, as it seems to be implied in the text in Acts 14. But that's, that's the context of what Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy 3. He's like, you remember the event that you saw that had a big impact on you deciding to be a, a follower of Christ? All right. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord Jesus rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's interesting he doesn't say everybody who's a Christian will be persecuted. He says everybody who really wants to be a godly person in Christ Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. And that's interesting. People that are for real about following Christ, about living a devoted godly life to him are going to be persecuted. And throughout church history, the main persecutors of the church are the people who claim to represent God. Now, in the first century, you had the Jews were the first persecutors of the Christians, um, the unbelieving Jews. Uh, make that clear because the first Christians are Jews, right? Obviously, were grafted into that, that tree, that vine. Um, but these are the people claiming to represent God. And then you go throughout history and you begin to see, well, ah, and we could go uh, Spanish Inquisition stuff, but if you really get into the persecution levied by, uh, by Pro Protestants onto the Anabaptist, it's horrific. Just absolutely horrific what happened to the people who are saying you need to be an adult to really be, to be baptized. You need to be able to choose this um, baptism, choose to give your life to Jesus, to be baptized just horrific, horrific persecution at the hands of the Protestant reformers. Um, continue. All right, let's continue. This is Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, with Christ, if, if, little word, big implications, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's kind of like Paul is uh, doing a little Philippian stuff. You compare the glory that's to be revealed with these sufferings. These sufferings are like rubbish. So verse 12, not that I've already obtained it, um, the fellowship being conformed to his death and uh, the power of the resurrection, all right? Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. Really interesting word there. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Uh you know, people say God doesn't want you to be perfect, right? Um, it's interesting in uh, Matthew chapter 5, I think it's in like verse 48, the, the last verse of Matthew 5, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's interesting. That's like be completely mature in your faith, just like God looks. And the, the passages right before that 
is not just doing good to those who will do good back to you, but actually doing good to your enemies because God sends rain on the just and the unjust, causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, right? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be complete, like an old pirate telescope that like pops out layer or, or, or like section by section. The telos telescope, that's, that's where this comes from, that idea of being completely stretched out, completely mature. And uh, what Paul is actually getting at here is very interesting, all right? This idea of becoming perfect. Uh, teleao, uh, yeah, I got that one right. Teleao. I'm going to give you all a couple of usage, usages of this um, teleao and what it, how, it, how it's uh, paired to the idea I think Paul's getting at with being conformed to his death. So this is Acts 20. This is him talking to the Ephesian elders saying that he's going to go to Jerusalem for something scary. And now as a captive to the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only that I may finish my course, teleao, and the ministry that I have re received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. Check out this passage from Hebrews 2. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to, to God, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, but now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Why did he get to experience the power of the resurrection, the power of glory coming on him? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He's glorified because he suffered death for everyone. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing many children to glory should make the pioneer, the author, the forerunner, right, of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And what's the suffering, the ultimate suffering? Tasting death for everyone. I hope that's connecting some dots there. Because Jesus was made perfect, complete. His mission was made complete by being the ultimate martyr. There's an early Christian quote here um, from Clement of Alexander that also kind of ties this together. And again, remember, we're not preaching a works-driven salvation at all. It's just this is like the ultimate goal of a Christian that we should be doing every day, dying for Christ every day, laying down our life for Christ every day. Each day may be our last. Here's Clement of Alexandria. We call martyrdom perfection. All right, straight up, that should make it plain. They call martyrdom perfection, but why? Not because the man comes to the end of his life as others, not because he's dying, but because he has exhibited the perfect work of love. And you think about Romans 5, right? That God demonstrated his love to us, right? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Laying down our life for God is the perfect act of love as long as you're not doing it to try to make it to heaven, that's not going to do it at all. It's not your work of righteousness that means anything. It's what Jesus does. But if we're being conformed to him, we'll gladly give our lives for the sake of the gospel because that's something that inspires others, just like you saw Paul in Lystra and the effect that that had on Timothy. 
Justin Martyr writes in 160, the more we're mown down to by you, he's writing this to the to the Roman emperor at the time. He says, the more we are mown down by you, the moan we the more we grow in number. Um continuing. All right, Paul says in uh, uh verse 12, not that I've already obtained it or become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Why was he laid hold of by Christ Jesus? 1 Timothy 12, powerful passage. You want to read that for him? Yeah. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant, with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be glory, sorry, be honor and glory forever. Amen. That's awesome. Why was, why did God lay hold of Paul for God's glory and to bring more people into the family of God. And so Paul's like, whatever I can do to bring more people into this family that I was brought into, me, the chief of sinners, whatever I can do, I want to do it. And I haven't laid hold of it yet. Like I haven't reached that perfection yet. He's thinking like his martyrdom, I think, I think he's thinking that his martyrdom is going to have a profound effect on the church. And I hate to use a Star Wars reference, but it's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi thing, strike me down, I'm only going to become stronger. That kind of idea, not that Paul's going to be showing up to people in dreams like, you know, some Catholics think about saints doing that kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about. It's just, it emboldens the church, just like Paul already wrote about in uh, Philippians in chapter one, how his persecution, his suffering is actually emboldening so many of the people in Philippi to suffer just like him. That's actually strengthening them. All right. Uh, Obi got it from Paul. <laughs> that's funny. That's good. So, um, yeah, I think that's where Paul is going. I could be wrong, but we're coming toward the end. All right, guys. Uh, brethren, I do not regard myself as laying, as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing on toward that upward call. He wants that goal, that prize. just want to give one reference to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, and then we're going to wrap it up. Paul writes, I've become all things to all men, so that I may be, so that I might, gosh, so I that I may. I have become all things yeah, to all men, Thanks. so that I may by all means, save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. That They then do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box 
in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Yeah. And what is that prize? Is Paul wanting a mansion in heaven? Is Paul wanting to play golf? Private jet. <laughs> yeah. You know, what? what's Paul's prize? Well, as we're, we're wrapping up, Paul's prize is from what we read in Philippians 3.8. I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Why would Paul make such a big deal about knowing Christ, knowing Christ, that that's so much better than everything else? Well, he's. I think he's thinking about the words of Christ. Something that often gets overlooked um, in presentations of the gospel when people are talking about eternal life. How does Jesus define eternal life? How do we define it versus how does Jesus define it? Here's Jesus defining eternal life. In his high priestly prayer, John 17, 1, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Heaven is not heaven without Jesus. Heaven would be hell without Jesus. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. And as much as I think I may know him, I do not know as I ought to know. I too often value the things of this world as great. And Jesus as a house guest, that's getting in the way. No, eternal life is knowing Jesus. And I want to know him. I hope you do too. Why am I so easily distracted? Why do I so quickly lose my way? I thought a heart of service is what mattered. Even best intentions lead astray. Just to sit at your feet And wait for my King to speak It's the hope that my soul needs It's found at your feet Oh, just to sit at your feet
at your feet and wait for my 